is Existential, a podcast aimed at reminding you that it's okay to be human. We listen to human stories and human experiences, and we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Existential on back on the podcast today. Um, we've never actually done this since we've been a podcast where we had someone back this quickly, but Joe Lumen is deserving of that honor. We might we might name a like we might have to name like an award after you on the podcast moving forward. <laughs> so we'd have someone back really quickly. It'll be the you get the Joe you get the Joe Lumen Award and you get to come back on the podcast. I think it was like just three episodes ago. I think there were four or something like that that you were on. So thanks for coming back. We love you. We are so like blessed, inspired. I don't want to, I don't know what all the words to use by the work you're doing, what you're saying, what you're putting out in the world. So thanks for coming back to talk to us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Corey. I really love the existential podcast and the work that you're doing too. I, every, um, every faith space that is a healthy faith space is just, it makes my heart leap. You know, and I think I, I hate, and I'm, I hate that it is a thing, but I'm grateful for folks like you that are trying to contend for better, but that we have to use the adjective healthy faith space because it's su- it's in such contrast to what seems to be normative these days. Yeah. Isn't that unfortunate <laughs> that <laughs> it, is, it is not common or normal and it is really hard to find actually healthy faith spaces. So you have to make sure that you you know, use the adjective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. And so one of the things that that makes the space unhealthy and the reason I, one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you um, was about this issue of of purity culture. I mean, that we've, we've seen like very toxic masculinity and patriarchy celebrated, especially in the Western evangelical church since I've been alive, you know, this sort of macho man kind of thing has always been celebrated and with that has also come this this place that, that men expect women to be in. And on top of that, you add a layer of really misinformed uh, sexual expectation and sexual ethic. And so I know that I know this is something that you have decolonized, deconstructed, and you know, all the things. So I wanted to hear you talk more about like, talk more about like what, what this thing does, not just to women, but also to men. Yeah. Um, and, and how, how we find our way out of it. Yeah. So yeah, purity culture really, um, it's, it's really also not that old. You know, the idea of purity culture is not that old. It, it's something from the 20th century, but it comes from a lot of patriarchal and um, like a lot of patriarchal ideologies of that, that have their roots in Christianity. So we have to talk about the notion of virginity and we have to talk about the notions of marriage, uh, which people think marriage has existed forever. And I think that the first time that marriage existed as a, um, as an idea of the church, like as a sacrament of the church was in the 13th century. So all of these things are not as old as people think they are. Before that, marriage was just an institution to acquire power and physical labor and to protect assets. And so there is where we have this idea of virginity and purity. And the only reason they had any, like they had any care about women's virginity because men's virginity never really mattered all that much. That idea of men's virginity mattering is quite new and it still doesn't even matter all that much but 
<laughs> yeah, it doesn't. But <laughs> women's virginity mattering was about the, the acquisition of property and it was about inheritance and the fact that they needed to ensure that the women that they were going to have sex with were having children that were their own so that when they were passing down property and then, then the physical labor and protecting of the assets, all of that was going to be um, we'd be kept inside of the family. So that, mm. that was the whole idea. So women had to be virgins for that purpose and that purpose only. Now, once women had already done that, um, really their purity didn't matter anymore. You know, it was, it didn't really matter what women did or didn't do. And that's where we, we also, like people say, there is no homosexual relationships or mentions of homosexual relationships in a lot of the Christian and, you know, Judaism well, that's not necessarily true. It's just they didn't matter because you cannot yeah. make babies, and so they didn't care about that. But if yeah. you read a lot of different things in, in different contexts, and if you read it without the biases that we've been given, you see homosexual relationships all throughout, as well as you see it all through the Greek and Roman empires and all, everywhere, not in necessarily always healthy ways, just like heterosexual relationships were not necessarily incredibly healthy. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. So we talk about purity, but it had nothing to do with protecting women. It had nothing to do with making sure that women were better off, so much so that a lot of the Levitical laws talk about institutionalizing of rape. Um, so women were allowed to be raped so long, if they were virgins, so long as the man was marrying them. Like if they married them, then it was totally fine. So it had nothing to do with purity. It had nothing to do with acceptability. It had nothing to do with God looking at them and being like, this is what I want you to do. Um, it didn't even have anything to do with, with ensuring that women were well off in society. Quite the opposite. It had everything to do with ensuring that men were okay, that their assets were protected. Um, and so these costs for women to become objects, really, you know, mm -hmm. we dehumanized, and not only men, but women, we did it too to ourselves. Internalized misogyny is real. And so dehumanizing the, the female body, dehumanizing women, and thinking that our object, our role, our, um, yeah, that's just what we do in society is produce babies for men is just be a part of what men are doing in the world and support them so that they can continue to move in the acquisition of property and assets and physical labor and whatever it is that they need it so women are no longer individuals with full autonomy and complete um like uh, human beings but instead we are just a secondary role in this story of men uh, and that, wow. when you dehumanize any person in your brain, that is as harmful for them as it is for you. You know, yeah. dehumanizing people in your brain makes dehumanizes you too. It makes you mm -hmm. less human. It keeps it, it takes away your ability to have compassion and love and show a lot of different emotions. So this has affected men in a lot of ways. And the expectations for men in society have lowered significantly because of all of this, you know? So mm -hmm. men are a lot like when they say well men mature slower than women I mean, i've heard that my whole life it's like no it's just been acceptable for men to be immature women mm -hmm. however are not accepted like we cannot be immature we have to grow up we have to respond differently but men it's like that's just how men are men mm -hmm. don't have like don't show enough compassion for others and that's just how men are they are disconnected from their emotions even more so than women and inside of toxic Christianity, everybody's disconnected from their emotions, but men more so. <laughs> yeah, everybody, everybody is. Yes, you cannot manipulate people if they are connected to their emotions. Um, mm -hmm. But men more so, because the only acceptable emotions for men are anger. 
I'm not, I'm, like, let me rephrase that. It's not anger, it's rage. Rage. Um, anger that turns into rage is the only acceptable emotion for men. And so every when they feel grief, they turn to rage. When they feel sad, they turn to rage. When they feel betrayed, they turn to rage. When they are happy sometimes, they even turn to rage because they don't know what to do with their emotions because we have not focused enough on giving both men and women, but especially men, um, uh, emotional fitness you know we haven't focused mm -hmm. on emotional intelligence and emotional fitness because the role of men in society is to continue to advance society the role of women is to care and nurture for men and children and so we've developed more emotional intelligence and fitness than men have and that hurts them and of course these are all generalizations you know yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm just talking yeah. about this society as a whole and mm -hmm. how it's harmed people and this this harm has been different for some men than other like for instance my husband is just a very emotional man and mm -hmm. he's always been told like i remember when we were inside of the church they kept telling him if only you had your house in order and by that they meant if you got your wife to shut up um <laughs> you would probably have a great career like you know the problem is you don't oh, have your house in order and and by that they meant like you know you have to be more authoritative you have to demand that she stops talking you have to make sure that she submits to you and that's just not my nature um, but he always feeling like he wasn't a good enough of a leader because he wasn't authoritative and really what they were asking him is to be more abusive mm. you know you are not abusive enough and so a man that is gentle that cares uh, you know, all of that is just not acceptable and even though there are a lot more men that are caregivers and that are the primary caregivers in the house and women are working more still if you talk to them the amount of shame that they carry from that like they are just less than there is this idea that men that are caregivers are less than and um like even in my in my own life i've seen these my husband changes a diaper and people are like, he's such a good dad. It's just amazing. He's just such a good dad. I'm like, he changed that diaper. That's, that's basic like caregiving. Like that's he signed up for that when he became a dad. But if I even raise my voice, it's like, oh, you need to control, like you're not a great mom. Like for women to be good moms, we have to be exceptional and perfect and you know, all of these things. But men have to change a diaper. Like or feed their children nuggets. And so there is these different expectations and the expectations for men are so low, like so deeply low that they have, they, like mediocrity with men has been normalized. Like mediocrity is acceptable with men, mm -hmm. especially inside of the Christian world. You know, all you have to be is a man that reads his Bible and you can become a pastor. And women, we have PhDs and it's like, mm, you cannot preach. So we've lowered the, the the bar for men so much, and that doesn't make it better for them. It really just harms them. It's harmed mm. them tremendously. There is a great book that just came out. It's mediocre. Um, and it's, you know, it talks about this. It talks about how especially the white man, the white mm. man, the expectations for the white man are so incredibly low that we have allowed for a lot of people that make in decision-making positions in the world um, that have that that are just mediocre leading us all to a mediocre society and asking us to clap for them wow. and we don't have to do that anymore and this all stems from purity culture and you know like the patriarchy really which evolved into purity culture wow man like i i wanted to pause so many times with like you were just it, it was it, it needed to keep flowing because it was just so rich <laughs> right but like you said something a, a, a minute ago that i, I, I like you said, and I, I'm going to actually butcher your quote now, but you said that you cannot manipulate people who are psychologically 
connected. Is that what you said? Is that how you said it? Or like connected or centered or something like something to that degree you said a few minutes ago. You cannot manipulate. I think I was talking about you cannot manipulate people who are emotionally uh, disconnected. Yes. Yes. So if you're disconnected, yes. disembodied from your emotions, you you know you're easily you're easily manipulated it's what i meant but if people are connected to their uh-huh. emotions and emotionally aware emotionally fit we cannot be manipulated because i am aware of what's happening i'm aware of the discomfort i'm aware of like i don't like how this is going i you are manipulating me i can actually say that but if i demand that you disconnect from your emotions then when you are feeling discomfort when you're feeling abused when you're feeling harm when you're feeling pain when you're feeling grief I can tell you, mm, no, it, none of that. Really, what you're feeling is the pain of growth, is what I was told often. You know, God is teaching you how to grow, or God is killing your humility. Uh, you're, I'm sorry, God is teaching you how to be humble, killing your pride. So if you push people to be disembodied and remove themselves from their emotions and not learn to observe them instead uh, and let them lead you, then people are really easy to manipulate and abuse. Wow. I, and I, I think... Wow. Like, I, I see that. Like, it's like right. when you say that out loud, you name it, you go, I've seen this for most of my life growing up in and around churches mm-hmm. that you don't, especially in the white evangelical church, you are not allowed space for the full range of your human emotion. No. Like, yeah. at all. The rush to happy. Yes. All the time. Like we're rushing to happy. We're rushing to uh, a, a really a false sense of peace and a false idea of of non-conflict. You know, they, they mm-hmm. run away from conflict because conflict means this in their brains. Conflict means disunity, which it does not. Um, you know, like and even if you, you see it today in the political arena, these conversations about peace and these conversations about harmony and these conversations about, hey, we have to be united. What does it mean to be united with white supremacy? What does it mean to be united with, you know, like why would I want to be united with white supremacy? Why would I want to be united with people that dehumanize me in their brain because mm-hmm. I am a brown woman, an immigrant, uh, you know, a woman? Uh, mm-hmm. Like, no, that the, in fact, I'd argue that conflict brings growth. So running away from conflict, this rush to, you know, the rush to forgiveness, the rush to reconciliation without repentance, all of that is making people run away from their emotions. And I don't know if you were able to tell this, but I was told this in my whole life. You're so, you're too emotional. You're too emotional. And what is that? It's this is um, denying my reality and saying, you don't get to be angry. You don't get to be sad. You don't get to feel abused. This translates into a lot of the parenting relationships, you know, that we've created and we've allowed because of colonization for people of color. That would be because of colonization, uh, and telling our kids, you don't have, you you don't get to have all of the range of emotions because if you do, you're going to be harmed by the master, Mm. you know? Uh, so I'm going to demand that you're always agreeable and smiling and fine because otherwise you're going to get killed. And so we're talking about the ancestral trauma of that. A lot of us have been told you don't get to have your full range of emotions because if you do, that's going to be harmful. And our parents did it to protect us. Our ancestors did it to protect us. Um, But now it's just really harming us and it's abusive towards us. And we get to instead sit down and say, none of this feels right. I don't like it. I don't want it. And I get to do something about it. And I get to come back and feel all of my emotions again. Because um, white people mm. have been allowed more emotions. That's why white people can yell at a cop, and we can't. Because they get to be angry at cops. We cannot. 
Mm. So they've, they've removed all of our emotions so mm. that we continue to be agreeable and we continue to be submissive and we continue to be manipulated and abused inside of this system. And the moment we con- like we give into all of our emotions, we are called thugs and we are called, you know, we're destroying property. It's like, no, we are responding appropriately to the oppression that we've been under. That's what we're doing. Our, our response is an appropriate emotional response to the amount of oppression and abuse that you've put us under. And so, you know, depending on the marginalization that we're talking about, the more marginalized that we are, the more that the disembodiment of emotions is demanded. So women don't get to, women get to have emotions, but when we have them, we're too emotional, we're angry. And then add race to that. What are black women? Angry, always, right? Angry black women when we're really talking about assertive women. That's it. I get angry and I get snarky and I get all the time. You're so snarky and you're so angry. I'm like, first, there is enough reason in my world to be angry. And second, I'm being assertive. I'm being assertive and you don't like it because you want my language to appease to your feelings. And I don't Mm. have to do that. We don't have Mm. to do that. None of us do. So, I mean, black men have felt a lot of this too. Like I said, you know, the intersectionality of oppression makes us feel it in different ways. But so long as you have an oppressed identity, you felt how you are demanded to be divorced from your feelings and just accept what they tell you you should feel and be. I think that's why there's so many black folks that still stay in oppressive religious relationships with their church or their pastor or whatever for years and years and years because you're hearing this like don't trust your emotions trust in god trust in the word trust in yada 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 and the average person going to church on a sunday is not a person who has any i mean you you have a phd or or, or, i have a master's degree i started my phd and they walked away okay (laughs) (laughs) you got your master you have an mdiv is that what a master's in theology. Master's in theology. And like, but the average person is not that. So you you don't you don't know how or understand context or language to re- really be able to like to to separate out the trash from right. the decent theology. Right. So you're just kind of like you can, like you said, easily be moved from your emotions. And then you're just sort of relying on the church, the institution, what they say the word of God says to be your decision maker. And if there's ever any dissonance from what they say from the stage and what you're feeling emotionally, you chalk it up to God's ways are higher than mine. It has nothing to do with God and everything to do with that person on stage manipulating you to not be true or centered or connected to what you're actually feeling. And listen, what are they disconnecting them to? If we, you know, because I believe in divinity, I still believe in divinity, and the narratives of faith and spirituality still move me and still are a part of me. So when you ask people to be disconnected from their emotions, disconnected from their own intuition, you're literally asking them to disconnect themselves from their source of divinity. You're Mm -hmm. asking them to be disconnected from God and make this person on stage their God. Mm -hmm. You are asking them to make of people an idol. It it is everything that goes against the principles of Christianity that we know, you know, the divinity that we know. You're telling them, I don't want you to be connected to your source of divinity. You no longer have to do that. Instead, I want you to be dependent on me and make of me an idol to know what is good and healthy and divine. And and so that's why I believe that the, the 
health demands that we reconnect ourselves to that source of divinity that is within us all mm. uh, and not no longer continue to have trauma bonds with the church and trauma bonds with church leaders but that we sever those trauma bonds and instead reconnect to the source of divinity that is within us and that mm. has been my own healing journey and it's been liberating in ways that I cannot even, you know, express. When people ask me, how, what do you do? How do you do to be able to just speak so freely and not feel afraid? And, and I'm like, because I'm connected to my source of divinity. I'm speaking from the, mm. the, the absolute depth and well of who I am. I'm not doing anything because I'm coerced to be. I'm doing everything that I do because this is who I am. This is who I was created to be. So I'm mm. not afraid and I'm also not drained I, you know, because I'm, this is who I am. This is it. That is my source of divinity. I want to like, really, I want to sit here for a second because I, I, I've read the quote a few times now that like, I think it's from the color purple. I've, I've found God within myself and, and I love her or something like that. Something to that, something to that effect. And what you're talking about to me, that's what that sounds like. It's like this, this discovery of God not out there, but yes. God in here. Yes, that is exactly what I believe. I believe that when, you know, the, the frame of the Christ um, as in divinity embodied in human form, the frame of the Christ, that Jesus was the Christ indeed, but the Christ is not limited to Jesus. Um, I am the Christ too, when I become the fullness of divinity that I was created to be. And so when you think about Moses and the burning bush, and he says, who do I say that sent me? Um, divinity says, say that I am sent you. I am. I don't. I think this is more allegorically than there was an actual burning bush talking to him. I think that Moses is talking about the fact that I am the fullness of being. Truly, yes. really being and not responding to trauma, indoctrination, insecurities, uh, societal conditioning, but truly, generally being is divinity. The fact that we get to expand and be and know ourselves so deep and so well, I am becomes divinity within us. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am, he's not saying I am the exclusive bread of life. He's not saying you find in this human Jesus, all of these things instead, well, my daughter, <laughs> instead, what he's saying, instead, what he's saying is everything that is the bread of life, everything that is the source of everything is within you. You are. When you are, then you found the source. The problem is that most of us don't heal enough or have enough accessibility to healing um, that we can become I am. But I am is divinity. I am is divinity. And so I don't believe in divinity as an external being out there that is moving um, strings around. I believe mm. that divinity is instead within. And mm. I don't have the fullness of divinity um, because I also have to see divinity in you. And I have to see divinity in others. And I have to see divinity in the universe. So divinity is all-encompassing and huge and expands. And we connect to one another because we are all part of divinity. But we all hold unique parts of divinity too. So it's kind of messy, but I think you're. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, oh boy, do I ever hear you? I'm like, it's it is. I'm speechless. Like the at that picture and frame of the divine, and how much it resonates 
with what feels like a God that's big enough yeah. to like be as creative and powerful and inspiring and, and moving and as the God that I I've, have hoped existed because the God yeah. that we've been hearing about is far too small. Like I was listening to this dude um, this preacher, because people kept sharing this video, and I wanted to see what it was about. This guy who was—he spent about seven or eight minutes telling women in the audience about how men are wired for sex, and they need to behold, be beholden to that. Yada yada, yeah. a bunch of the patriarchal bullshit. Same stuff we hear all the time. And at one point, the thing that disturbed me the most of of like listening to this guy was when he said, he said something about like uh, men and women being together in a way that pleases God. Yeah. And I thought that that phrase, pleases God, felt so small in the context of this, this, this act that people do together somehow pleases God. And I went, I, I don't, I can't like, I can't see God that way anymore. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Uh, and, and God, you know, they, I say that all the time. Their God is just this little... Um, puppet that they carry in their pockets to be able to agree with all their biases that's it mm -hmm. that's all their god is but my god is big and my god is vast and my god takes over and you know this divinity and that's why i love to talk about the connectedness the interconnectedness of humanity and that's why i know i am i am interconnected to you and interconnected to all of us because we carry divinity together and we're never going to know the fullness of divinity or what i call heaven on earth until we are all able to move toward being like truly honestly generally being and that's why we cannot harm another i cannot dehumanize another and harm another without actually actively harming myself because we are interconnected. There is no just me. There is no such thing. And that's why the, the, the framework of the church is beautiful to me, but we've narrowed it. We've made it so small. We think that church is a building full of people that agree. And instead, we should see the, the, the church as community interconnected, doing life together, committed to growing and moving together towards healing and wholeness and heaven on earth, taking territory against oppression and pain. No, not pain. Pain is good. Suffering is bad. Against <laughs> suffering and oppression and abuse together ensuring that if you're not okay i'm not okay either and i'm gonna make sure that we're okay together that's the church so when people tell me you left the church i'm like yeah i left the building but yeah. the church cannot i cannot leave the church because i'm it i can uh, buy it i walk it yeah that's it like god left the building some time ago <laughs> oh gosh yes <laughs> yes like, but um so uh, who who um I'm going to, I'm going to, I wanted to ask the question this way, just because I think you understand what I mean when I say this, but who have you canceled lately? <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, today, I mean, we both, we both talked about this before we started recording, how we haven't seen the, the interview with the yeah. Royals, yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah. I mean, I, I want to cancel the monarchy, you know, like I want to cancel, like, I don't like to cancel people. I don't believe in canceling people. I don't even believe that cancel culture doesn't even exist, especially exactly. cancel culture. I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that. Cancel culture exists for marginalized identities only. Yes. You know, yes. when, when privileged identities talk of cancel culture, they're gaslighting us into not holding them accountable. That's it. That's all that's happening. Um, but I don't cancel people. I do want to cancel systems. 
I do want to cancel ideologies. I do want to cancel. So let's cancel purity culture and let's cancel uh, oppressive empire Christianity and let's cancel. And, and I am inviting people all the time. Like, can you please divest from oppression so that you stop thinking that I'm canceling you personally because you mm. are so deeply committed to oppression that, that you've made it your even identity? Like, mm. you are not... Your, your, your identity is not in the oppression that you are causing, but you've made it your identity. So when I want to cancel oppression, you think I want to cancel you. And that's rather telling. That's just rather telling. When you could just divest from oppression and walk with us toward liberation for all people. Um, I, I talk to white men a lot about how it is impressive when a white man actually wants to divest from oppression because right now as the world sits they have a good deal you know they were given a good deal of cards white cisgender heterosexual men um especially if they have money like forget it they were given a good deal so why would they want to change when we tell them like can we please change the world they say why like it's It's great it's such a good world (laughs) so I can't listen to them. That's why, I, and I haven't canceled men. I haven't canceled white men. I'm married to one for crying out loud. <laughs> I, however, don't want to listen to them right now. You know, like 80% of the books that I read on a year, and I read a lot, 80% of the books are from marginalized identities because we've listened to white men enough and because white men are not going to lead us to liberation, which is what my entire life revolves around. So if I want to move toward liberation, why would I listen to the people that are going to look at me and say, the world is fine, you know? So divesting also includes how do we uplift the voices of those whose humanity and um, survival depends on us divesting from oppression? Yeah, I mean, it's like you, you, you've always found the divine hovering and embodying in the midst of the people who most need liberation, yeah. or the people who need to be liberated. And, yeah. and I think that the movement began that way, and I've talked about this before, it somehow got to the United States, or probably started over in Europe, and became a top-down dynamic where the powerful told the oppressed about God as right. a way to oppress them instead of the um, instead of a, the liberating message that God doesn't God's not into oppressing people God's not into yeah. people being less than God's not into creating a supreme race of people to dominate the rest of them that's not what God's ever been into yeah. but we just we can easily slip into that in the United States because as you said who we're hearing from all the time are the ruling class yeah. That's why I was like, when you asked me, what have you been up to this like lately? I'm like, I am investing a lot of my time in uplifting voices of marginalized folks. Um, Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that means working within the capitalistic white supremacist society that we're in. So I need books printed that are written by marginalized folks. Not because what they say is not valuable unless it's in a book, but because in this white supremacist society, people think that unless it's in a book, it's not valuable. You know, but in the meantime, they have been speaking for always publicly. You know, they have been doing public, like I call public theology a lot of things that is not that people don't consider theology, but they've been doing this public theology, talking about the humanity of who they are, the reality of their humanity all the time. And we just think like, oh, you know, it's just a blog post or it's just them talking on a camera. When in reality, they are inviting us into a greater understanding of heaven. They really are. And we're missing out. 
So I want all these books written and I want all these books printed. And I want us all to make an effort to just really listen, not because everybody else doesn't have anything to say, but instead because we're better together and we have a plethora of white voices already to choose from. But we don't have enough black, queer, you know, disabled, fat people talking. And we need to hear them. I need to hear them. Yes, 100%. We all need to hear them. And I I just, I, I so feel like the movement moving forward. I feel like there is, there are more people like you popping up. Um, there are more people resonating and listening to you. I, I see I see your influence growing. And that makes me feel really, really glad inside. Because I, 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 when I, I will tell you also that I really get, you know, I think you saw on Twitter, not too long ago, somebody said something to you and I just was really pissed. <laughs> I just, somebody said like, I think it was like, hey, I think it was some dude who, who came to, to Cape for some white evangelical that you were holding accountable. And he's like, dude, don't bother. She's just going to yada, yada. And I, I don't know what I said to the guy. I mean, it was probably, it was kinder than what I wanted to say, but I'm yeah. just really like, really, really frustrated and over the, 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 the group of folks that like are so, like you said, that are so reluctant to be held accountable that they demonize folks who are trying to to actually live from a a, a pure and real and authentic place that says what you're doing harms people down here that you're not you don't even know exist and i'm i'm letting you know about it and when i let you know about it you gaslight me and you try to make me out to be something that i'm not right yeah it happens all the time it you know it's it's part of i i tell people all the time if you are not they ask me like how did you you know what are the main things that you would tell someone that wants to start doing more work in 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 this arena and i say if you're not ready to be misunderstood and misrepresented don't bother don't bother because you're going to be defending yourself all the time then and i don't defend myself often i do educate though so i'm like no let me educate like i take educational opportunities <laughs> all the time uh, but i don't defend myself there's nothing to defend i do educate and i say what well, you said is wrong for these several reasons and i'm going to educate publicly because it's not about you it's about everybody else watching um because education is actually what's going to make the difference and education is exactly what has been used or lack thereof um to oppress people the moment Christianity changed was the moment that they decided to make a book the source of knowledge of the divine and then not give access to anybody to that book. The only ones that had access were those in power. And that was the case for a good couple, like a millennia and a half. You know, nobody had access to this book, only the powerful. Therefore, the only ones that had knowledge to knowledge to what God was were these people that were the powerful. And they got to interpret that for everybody else. And the more that knowledge has been accessible, the more that education has been accessible for all, the more that you will find more and more people popping up and saying, like, actually, no, I'm too educated to take your stuff at face value. That's why yeah. I recently tweeted about Genesis and how Adam and Eve eating from the garden of tree of knowledge of good and evil, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden, is not wasn't bad. Knowledge mm. leads us to liberation. Knowledge leads us to liberation because the garden wasn't a liberated place. In the garden, they didn't have all of the knowledge. And without all of the knowledge, you cannot make decisions with full consent. And without consent, you don't have freedom. We have to, even when the decisions that we make are decisions that are going to lead to death, which is what it says, you know, if you eat of the tree, you're going to have death. And death just meant you're not going to have eternal life. But who says they wanted it? Some of us don't want eternal life. I don't, for one. 
So if you don't give people full knowledge, then they don't have full consent. And without full consent, they don't have full agency. And without full agency, you are oppressing them in some way. So the moment they ate of that tree, they became knowledgeable. They knew. And then they could make choices, true choices with full knowledge. So giving people knowledge, which if you look at conservative evangelical Christianity, what do they do? Suppress knowledge all the time. 100%. All the time. They suppress knowledge all the time because when you give people full knowledge, they get to make decisions for themselves. They get to make decisions on their own and you cannot manipulate them into doing things that you want them to do anymore because they are too educated to take your words at face value. So that's why I like to publicly educate. That's why I share so much information online for free. Um, not because it's profitable. It's absolutely not. It's because it's it's going to lead us to liberation. The more knowledge you have, the safer you feel, and the safer you feel, the more healing you do, and the more yeah. healing we do together, the more likely we're moving toward heaven. Yeah, I think you just pointed out something that's really important. And and and, and you said that it was, you know, it's it existed before when that one book became the source of all knowledge on the on, on the divine and only the powerful could could interpret that book for us. I still feel like there's a lot of that in the church. And I think that I feel like that's why you with a master's in theology can say, can, can blow the whistle or, or, or sort of name something that's off from some pastor who's a celebrity who doesn't have a master's in theology at all. They just, like you said, they were, they just happen to be a part of the right tribe of people who gets the chance and opportunity to be pastor but they doesn't they don't even have to back it up with any sort of education or any sort of knowledge so but because of their power dynamic because of the position they hold by being white cisgendered and and hetero they can take the posture that's like well she doesn't know what she's talking about right. i do right. but why so why how 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 and why do you she has a <laughs> master's in theology right you and i have lists upon lists of the books that I've read. Like I share publicly books that I read. I have lists and lists and I tell them, but it's like, no, but you're not me. So you can't know. (laughs) You're a brown skinned woman. How could you possibly know? You, you were like, English isn't even your first language. (laughs) How could you know? (laughs) So yeah, that's, that's really how they talk to me, which is really adorable. Oh my um, God! They tell on themselves, you know, when they talk to me, and they talk to me like that. Even the good-meaning white men talk to me like that. Like they come, and they, I, I say something, and I explain it very thoroughly, and then they come and add to my thought, and they're adding to my thought is just repeating what I said, trying to teach me. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know why you're doing that. Like, what possessed you to believe that it was necessary for you to insert your voice here by repeating my words to myself? I don't, you know, but it's this indoctrination to believe that their voice is just so important and we all need to hear it. I, I'm like, I'm going to spend the rest of the day now, like really thinking through this idea of the Satan, because when, because of like, when you talk about like what possessed them and I think about like generation upon generation upon generation of European people who came to the United States and became white and were given this 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 power to rule over everyone else yeah that like even f- you don't have to try to lean into that it just shows up yeah. in your like you said you said even the even the ones that aren't necessarily trying to be mean-spirited are still that thing that evil that like 
supremacy that shows up before they even realize it has shown up. Right. And gosh, like, I don't, I, I don't, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm almost stuck now. I'm like, what is that thing? Is that right. the Satan that, that, you know, that, that scripture talked about? Because, you know, some people right. think it's like the devil's like this person that walks around, right. yada, yada. but like the idea of there being a, a wickedness that suppresses and binds our humanity in such a way that we cannot be fully human. Right. That idea is, the, is to, for me, that's the Satan. And I'm like, right. is that what we're seeing now? Right. It's interesting for me that first, if I, I ask people this all the time. Like, can you point to me to one bad thing Satan did in the Bible? Point me to one, one, just one. Because I can point you to several that God did that are very problematic. Several. Like, we're talking genocide here and infanticide and, you know, the demonizing of entire people groups, all at the hands of God. But Satan, the only the only place where people can point me to is Job. And um, that was with permission of God. Actually, God incited the whole thing. God was like, hey, Satan, look at Job. <laughs> <laughs> like, God was the mean person in this whole entire scenario. So obviously we're talking about, you know, like different dichotomies of good and evil that ancient people did just simply not understand. But Satan as the embodiment of evil didn't exist until much later in the history of the Hebrew people. Um, you know, like this, this person, this embodiment, it didn't mm -hmm. exist. Before that, it was just like there was just this dude who was part of the angels in heaven. And he was just used by God, literally used by God to cause some harm. Like a lot of them were, you know? Um, so, but then when I think about, if we understand, obviously I don't believe in these supernatural beings out over there in the ceiling somewhere. Um, but instead, I do believe in trauma. And I do believe in the realities that we, that we create about ourselves and about others due to trauma. And how we, when we dehumanize someone, you know, when we create all of these biases that become implicit biases, subconscious ideologies about the world, subconscious ideologies about others, we become Satan. Yeah, we are acting mm -hmm. like Satan, harming other people. So the the work of the anti the, the antichrist really is exactly that: refusing to see divinity in everybody else, refusing to see the divinity in an entire people group. That's the antichrist. So white supremacy is the Antichrist, and sexism is the Antichrist, and all of these things that suppress the divinity in entire people groups and entire human beings is the Antichrist. And it all stems from a type of trauma, ancestral, long, deeply held trauma that they are now carrying inside of their DNA. Like, I'm, I'm not even talking about a supernatural thing here. I'm talking about a very physical thing like they are carrying this trauma this ancestral trauma in their dna it's codified inside of their brains and it takes a lot of active conscious aware hard work to divest from all of that heal and rewire they need to quite like i i think people sometimes think i'm, I'm talking uh, allegorically here i'm talking hyperbolically but i'm not i mean this literally they have to rewire their entire brain rewire completely what they have been told ancestrally about others and about you know themselves too mm. so that they are able to show up in the world as the christ because they believe that they are superior and like their brain has been wired for so long 
to believe that they are superior and everybody else is inferior, that it shows up in subconscious ways without them wanting it to show up. But it's there nonetheless. So they have to make all of these subconscious things conscious. And who wants to see themselves as the Satan? Nobody. But until we are all willing to make peace with the fact that we both carry Satan and the Christ within us, both the Antichrist and Christ inside of us, we're not going to do better. We're just not. And the people that are the most resistant, which is where we talk about white fragility, right? The people that are the most resistant to seeing themselves as the Antichrist are those who have the most power. Why? Because they've been hardwired to believe that they are superior. You cannot be superior and the Antichrist at the same time. So they are like, their own brain betrays them. It's like, no, I cannot be the Antichrist. I'm the good guy. We've always been the good guy. It's like, there's no such thing as the good guy. We're all good and bad guys and nuanced, complex beings. And I need you to grapple the reality. Like, I need you to grapple with the reality that you're both the Antichrist and the Christ, that you have the power to be both. And you're making choices to not become conscious about that. And therefore, you continue to be the Antichrist. I just I just don't understand why um, why like someone like you is not teaching Bible and pastoring every church in the world. <laughs> I just don't, I don't just, oh, you're like, so kind. Because I just don't hear this like people that people don't talk this way about God and Satan and us as human beings. It's yeah. It is. It's this this way of talking about God for me has been as you described earlier so liberating because it's it's couched in such an authentic thing that i don't have to be afraid i don't have to live in fear of where my of where my brain may take me like i can remember when i was at i was probably 16 17 years old and i was so afraid of the thought that like wait a minute if god's all powerful and all knowing and all these other things then putting a tree in a garden for people knowing that they were going to, you have to know they're going to eat it. So when you put it there, you knew that was going to happen, which means that down the line, you knew people are going to go to hell and all these things. I'm like, oh no, I can't have those thoughts because they're going to lead me away from, I thought they were going to lead me away from God, but really they were going to lead me away from the systems that were trying to control me and keep me from the full range of my own emotion. And had I got, I mean, you know, maybe I just got free at the exact right time. I mean, maybe if I got, maybe it was too much when I was younger. You know, right. but right. I still look back and go, God, I, I wonder what the world would be like if like this was the faith that we yeah, normalize. And if this was how people talk about faith in the United States for the last 50 years. Oh, can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine if we talked about how the accessibility to divinity is there for all of us? Mm-hmm. How the goal is not to fit into boxes and check off all of these boxes and look the right way. But instead, the goal is to be to expand, to exist fully, completely, as we were made to be, to exist, like the world that we'd have, the beauty we'd be able to create, how much of our own creative power as humans, individually and collectively, how much of our own creative power has been um, taken away from us, destroyed, because we're all just trying to survive inside a system just completely set on destroying us. Jeez. Like how, how much beauty, how much, because if you think about all of the creative things that people do, all, all creativity really comes from the margins, by the way. And I, I can back that up with facts, but I, I know that you know that's true. Mm. Mm. All creativity comes from the margins because when you are not, you know, when, when you are completely privileged, you don't have to think creatively. You don't have to create anything. What do you have to create? But when you're in the margins, you do have to create. You have to create to survive. 
So all creativity comes from the margins. However, that is creativity that comes, that comes from oppression, not from wanting to create a better world, just from wanting to survive. Imagine what we would create if we all could create from like being completely who we are and not from trying to survive. The beauty we'd have, the magnificence we'd see. That's why most of the books that you see from marginalized people are books about our pain and yeah. our trauma. That's all they want to hear from us, our trauma and our pain. Because the moment that we talk about just our joy and our beauty and start creating more, they're like, oh, you're going too far. We don't care about you. <laughs> but tell us about your trauma. We like that. We like that. You know, the, oh the, the porn of that. Yes. Yes. So wow. I, when I talk about I want to magnify the voices of the marginalized, I'm not talking about their trauma. I'm talking about our beauty. I'm talking about I want people to talk about theology from here. I want books talking about all of the things that we've talked about today. Not, not talking about our trauma, but talking about our brilliance and the magnificence, like the magnificent ideas that we all have that have been, we've been told, like, you don't get to have those. So, shh. No, you have to hear us because we are brilliant. We are brilliant. And every time I've said we are brilliant publicly, the amount of pushback I get, especially from women, by the way, where people are like, oof, that doesn't sound very humble. I'm like, humility is knowing who you are. I know I'm brilliant. Mm. I know. See, and the, the moment that you embody the divine, the moment that you expand and you say, this is who I am, and I don't have to be ashamed or shrink myself for you to be more comfortable, then they, they get so uncomfortable. They are like, oh, no, hey. can you shrink yourself, please? Because it's making me really uncomfortable. Wow. Like, no, we don't shrink. We expand. We expand. They pick up stones to stone you like they yeah. did with Jesus the Christ. That, yes, like, all exactly. of those declarations were so uncomfortable for them. Because, like, who do you think you are? By what authority do you do this? Where does this come from? And it's the same stuff today. Yeah, it's the exact same stuff. And what did they do to, you know, the sojourney, the sojourner truths? What did they do to, you know, the even the Che Guevara's? Like, I know mm -hmm. he did a lot of things that are problematic too. Everybody does. But what, the, what do they do to them? The Nelson Mandela's. What do they do? Mm -hmm. Sit down. Sit down. You're taking mm -hmm. too much space. You, the, this is not allowed. This is not allowed. So the more space that we take, the more that's, the, the more stones that are going to be thrown at us. But mm -hmm. I refuse to shrink. I, I lived, uh, you know, over three decades shrinking. Same. It, it leads to hell, psychological hell. I will yeah. not shrink anymore, even if that means taking the stones. I'll take them. So when people mm -hmm. say, why did Jesus die? Because he chose not to shrink. Mm -hmm. And I get that choice. I understand that choice. I refuse to shrink too. Damn. Joe, thank you so much again for your time, for your brilliance, um, for teaching us um, about what it means to have an encounter with the I am and to come out on the other side as fully yourself and fully divine. That's such a rich story and, and thing for us to hear. So thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the podcast again. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really do love talking to you. It makes yeah. me really happy. Um, it's different. It's different to talk to people that are, you know, like where you are kind of bouncing off each other and it's like, yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I love talking to people that are, you know, embodying their divine themselves. It just, mm. it makes for, it, feel, it feels to me like we are, if we talk about like electromagnetic forces, it feels mm -hmm. like we're expanding our electromagnetic force bigger mm -hmm. and it, it just, it's healing in itself. So thank you.
For sure. Yeah, I know. I feel that as well. I, anytime I listen to you talk, uh, I mean, just before you, before we go, just you said something. I didn't even watch the full video, but the other, and, and I told my wife about this. You said something about like, um, and I'm, this is bonus for anybody listening to. Like, this is this is this is bonus for you, right? You said something about um, being becoming committed in a in a in a relationship, becoming committed to being healthy. Yeah. And that both of our jobs is to commit to our own health. Right. And if that leads to us no longer being together, then so be it. Right. And like, I heard you say that and went like, who says that? It's so, res- it's so like real and scary and also yeah. divine and powerful. And I'm like, golly, I just, I loved it so much. Yeah. So. You know what? We've been told success is a lot of nonsense that is not success at all. We've been told success in marriage or relationships in general is longevity. That's not success. You know, that's just the appearance of success. It's looking like because we're still together, therefore we must have done something right. Success is health and wholeness always, even if that means we're not together. Mm. And that applies to all relationships, not just romantic ones. Like Mm. for some children, success means setting a lot of very important boundaries with their parents. It doesn't mean that their parents necessarily failed. They did the best they could with the tools they had, but our relationship is going to be more successful if we have more boundaries and there is less connection between you and me. And we're both successful in that and we walk away from each other. So my husband and I are still married and that is a conscious choice that we've made because it is healthy for us to be together right now. And we are completely okay if tomorrow that's not the case anymore. Because at the end of the day, we're both rushing toward health, not toward longevity. Or the appearance of, you know, a marriage. Who cares? Wow. Wow. Joe, thanks so much. Um, I want to say thanks to all of you who listened to this episode. Um, You and I were blessed to be a part of this conversation. Uh, Thanks to all of you who are part of the Patreon community. Any of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast, thank you for doing that. And thanks for helping us to continue for a better world, one conversation at a time.